and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Today, we're going to get into the Christmas spirit by comparing the 2017 movie, The Man Who Invented Christmas, with history. Now, if you're not familiar with the film itself, the story is that of Charles Dickens and how he wrote the classic Christmas story, A Christmas Carol. The movie is written by Mozart in the Jungle's writer, Susan Coyne, and based on a book also called The Man Who Invented Christmas by historian Les Standiford. So what we're learning about today is a movie that's based on a non-fictional book that's based on the life of an author whose book is considered by many to be the basis of the Christmas spirit we're familiar with today. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things, and two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Charles Dickens was forced into child labor at a young age. Number two, Charles's dad, John, served time in debtor's prison. Number three, Charles Dickens invented Christmas. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to let you know at the very end of this episode, after we find out what the answer to two truths and a lie is, there's going to be a little special surprise. So stick around to the end to find out what that is. But for now, if you're ready, let's learn about the man who invented Christmas. The movie opens with some text on screen giving us a bit of background. We're in New York in the year 1842. According to the movie, Charles Dickens is basking in the success of his latest novel, Oliver Twist, and as he's touring around America. Fans of the book are welcoming him with lavish galas in every city. As we see Charles, who's played by Dan Stevens in the movie, backstage, we hear the announcer introducing him. Tonight, live on stage, the great magician of our time whose wand is a book, the Shakespeare of the novel, the people's author, the great and marvelous Boz. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Charles Dickens. Then, walking out on stage, Charles appears to thunderous applause. The stage changes behind him, indicating that this is happening in cities across America. So, did this tour of America happen? Wait a minute. Who, the guy who introduced him on stage called him Boz? What's with that? Well, as dramatized as these scenes may be for the movie, they're still pretty accurate. Charles's Dickens book, Oliver Twist, was published between the years 1837 and 1839 in a series of 24 sequential installments known as a serial. It marked the first time in an English novel that there was a child as the main protagonist. Oliver Twist, of course, being the child's name. And it is true that in 1842, like the movie says, Charles Dickens embarked on a tour across America where he was hailed like a rock star. Everyone loved him. In fact, even though the movie doesn't mention the date, 
The event that we see happen first in New York in 1842 was on Valentine's Day, and it was a massive ball that rivaled any event the city had seen up to that point. There were 3,000 people at the Park Theater that night, and Charles spent much of it dancing with his wife, Catherine. She's played by Morphid Clark in the movie, by the way. But that tour wasn't all happiness. The trip started off for Charles to see if the Americans had a better system than the classes in England that he despised. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but after the first few stops, Boston, New York, Charles quickly started to go downhill. He grew tired of how enthusiastic his fans were, once writing, quote, I can't drink a glass of water without having 100 people looking down my throat when I open my mouth to swallow, end quote. Or there was the time in Cleveland, Ohio, and he woke up to find a, quote, party of gentlemen, end quote, watching his wife sleeping in bed. That's creepy. Even his trip to Washington, D.C., where he hoped to learn more about American politics, was overshadowed by people spitting tobacco in the city streets. Charles wrote, quote, Washington may be called the headquarters of tobacco tinctured saliva. The thing itself is an exaggeration of nastiness, which cannot be undone, end quote. He'd later sum up his trip in a letter to one of his friends named William McReady by saying, quote, I am disappointed. This is not the republic I came to see. This is not the republic of my imagination, end quote. If you want to learn more about Charles's trip to America in 1842, check out the travel log he wrote while in North America called American Notes. The last bit to mention about the opening sequence in the movie, though, has nothing to do with his trip to America. It's the mention of the name Boz. The movie mention is actually correct. Boz was a name Charles Dickens often wrote under. It was a nickname he borrowed from his younger brother, Augustus, as they were children. But as his career grew, most of his friends called him Boz, and he himself, Charles, actually referred to himself as Boz. There was even a Boz ball on one of the stops in the 1842 tour of North America. And in 1843, his novel, The Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit, listed Charles Dickens as the author, but included the phrase edited by Boz on the title page. So he wrote and edited, basically. (laughs) Speaking of Chuzzlewit, if we head back to the movie, the next bit of text that we see tells us that it's now October of 1843. That's 16 months and, according to the movie, three flops after the American tour. The movie even mentions Chuzzlewit when we see Charles and his friend John Forster at a restaurant. Miles Jupp's character, Thackeray, comes up to the two friends at the table and talks about the vile things the reviewers wrote about Chuzzlewit. So that must have been one of the flops we just learned about that the movie doesn't really name, right? Well, yes, and sort of no. (laughs) You see, many of Charles Dickens' writings that we think of now as books were at the time serials, sort of like how Charles' second book, Oliver Twist, was published between February of 1837 and April of 1839. So many of his other stories were published in that same way. After The Adventures of Oliver Twist came The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. That was also a monthly serial published between April of 1838 and October of 1939. So technically, Nicholas Nickleby started publishing a year before Oliver Twist's final chapters published. After Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop was published between April of 1840 and November of 1841. 
And then Barnaby Rudge was also published between February and November of 1841. Finally, the only one the movie mentions is really Chuzzlewit, which was published starting in January of 1843 and ended up finishing in July of 1844, which would mean that it finished almost six months after the publication of A Christmas Carol in December of 1843. That's why kind of yes, kind of (laughs) no. So to recap, the timeline is a little more complex than the movie makes it seem, thanks to the books not publishing all at once. Oliver Twist's final publication came in April of 1839, and the tour that we saw in the beginning of the movie was in 1842. Even though the movie doesn't mention which three novels it's considering to be flops, there are four that could be in the running simply based on their publication dates being right after Oliver Twist. That would be the ones we just talked about, Nicholas Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop, Barnaby Rudge, and then Martin Chuzzlewit. Interestingly, of those, Nickleby was an immediate success that only helped cement Charles Dickens as a famous writer at the time. The Old Curiosity Shop was so popular that New Yorkers stormed the wharfs when they heard about the arrival of the ship containing the first installments they came in 1841. Those last two, though, would certainly qualify as the flops the movie is talking about. Barnaby Rudge was met with criticism, not nearly the popularity as Charles's previous books. But even then, the timeline of the movie is a bit off because Barnaby Rudge was published between February and November of 1841, with the serial installments finally being published into a single book after that, also in 1841. So that was before the American tour in 1842. Charles didn't publish any novels in 1842, but rather he wrote his travelogue called American Notes about his trip to America that we learned about earlier. American Notes didn't sell well at all, probably because Charles was so disenchanted with the trip that it turned into what many at the time considered to be quite insulting to his fans in the United States. And so, even though the movie doesn't give us the title of the three flops, we can only assume that the three movies they're talking about aren't three novels, but rather they must be Barnaby Rudge, which was just before the trip, The American Notes Travel Log, and then, of course, Chuzzlewit, that he started soon after his return to England. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Ernan. The movie also doesn't mention this at all, but Charles borrowed 2,000 pounds from his publishers, Chapman and Hall, to cover both his trip to the United States and Canada, along with the mere fact that he wasn't going to be writing any new novels for an entire year. 
Adding to that was another 1,000 pounds of debt that Charles had racked up thanks to the poor sales of his book just before the tour, Barnaby Rudge. That loan was to be paid back in the form of a new novel that Charles would begin writing as soon as he returned from North America. But they added another stipulation to the loan that they would take out, his publishers, that is, would take out 50 pounds of his monthly salary of 200 pounds, making it 150 pounds, if they didn't have the sales of his next book that they needed to start paying back the back loan. Charles and Catherine began their return journey from North America on June 7th, 1842. And then in January of 1843, the first of the Chuzzlewit stories were published. Like the movie suggests, Chuzzlewit was significantly less popular than his previous books. But as we learned earlier, the timeline of the movie is going to be a bit off because Chuzzlewit continued their monthly installments through July of 1844. So it's not like it was a completed book like the movie suggests or makes it seem by the time October of 1843 rolled around. Going back to the movie, with a growing debt looming, Charles is talking with his publishers when he mentions a new book. They say, well, obviously we'd love to consider it. Wait, consider it? Charles asks. Well, yes, if we like it, they stammer. In a huff, Charles leaves the room. The great Charles Dickinson's writing isn't a sure thing like it had been in the past. It seems they're a bit more hesitant now that he's had a few less than successful books. And that's true. Granted, it didn't happen exactly like what we see in the movie, but as Charles continued to write the Chuzzlewit story, it evolved with the sales. Remember, they were published in installments as they were released, and as sales weren't where they wanted them to be in the beginning, Charles added a bit of a stab at the United States that he thought might help increase sales in England. In particular, many critics pointed to a part where a couple of the book's characters are having a conversation. Why? I was a thinking, sir, that if I was a painter and was called upon to paint the American eagle, how should I do it? Paint it as an eagle, as you could, I suppose. No, said Mark. That wouldn't do for me, sir. I want to draw it like a bat for its short-sightedness, like a bantam for its bragging, like a magpie for its honesty, like a peacock for its vanity, like an ostrich for putting its head in the mud and thinking nobody sees it. Well, needless to say, this characterization of the American Eagle didn't win him any new fans in the United States. In fact, it lost him one of his most popular supporters in American author Washington Irving. He's the guy who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, among other classics. But in England, it did help with sales, just not as much as Charles wanted. The series sales increased by only about 3,000 copies, going from 20,000 to 23,000 issues being sold for The Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. For a bit of comparison, his hits like Nicholas Nickleby had 50,000 people buying each issue of the monthly installments, while the old curiosity shop boasted sales of just over 100,000 per issue. Chuzzlewit wasn't pulling in the numbers it needed to keep Charles's publishers from taking that 50 pounds out of his monthly salary that they had agreed to earlier. And even though he'd agreed to the reduced stipend should sales be low, when the time came to actually reduce his paycheck, Charles was understandably not too happy about it. So that is what caused Charles to get upset at his publishers at Chapman and Hall. It wasn't really their hesitation over publishing his new book like the movie shows, although 
If it could have been a fly on the wall for their conversations, I'm sure they weren't happy about the low sales and were indeed very hesitant about working with Charles anymore until he'd been able to start paying back some of the money that he owed them. Charles, thoroughly upset at the low sales, uh, growing debt, and the latest news that Chapman and Hall were going to start deducting money from his salary, wrote a letter to his friend, John Forster, in which he promised he would never write for Chapman and Hall again. Then, seemingly in a move to back up his words, Charles signed an agreement with the company that was printing his books, Bradbury and Evans, to work with them to print his next book. Back in the movie's storyline, after storming out of his publisher's office, Charles meets up with his friend, John Forster, at a restaurant, and we see one of the waiters stop by. Charles asks his name, to which he says it's Marley. Charles writes this down, saving the name for future use. Of course, we know how he used the name, Jacob Marley, the deceased business partner of Ebenezer Scrooge. But is that true? Was Jacob Marley based on a real person? Well, maybe. Even though the movie makes it seem like Charles got the name from a waiter in the restaurant, the basic gist of Charles collecting names of people he met for future use was true. It's just that in this instance, Jacob Marley most likely did not come from a waiter's name. It's hard to know for sure since there's no documented proof tracking the origins of who may have been the inspiration for Jacob Marley, but according to a historian named Barry West, he believes the character was inspired by a London physician named Dr. Miles Marley. According to Mr. West, who spent years researching the topic, there's a newspaper clipping that suggests Dr. Marley hosted a party for St. Patrick's Day at 11 Cork Street in Westminster, London. One of those guests invited for the celebration was none other than Charles Dickens. So it would make sense that Charles and Dr. Marley had met even before the event. You don't invite random guests to your party, usually. <laughs> and according to Mr. West's research, there's also evidence of a conversation during the event where Charles told Marley that his name, which both agreed was unusual, would be a household word by the end of the year. The next major plot point in the movie takes place when he's tracked down in a crowd by a woman who says she's a big fan. Then her husband, an older man, arrives. He's obviously not a fan. The interaction goes something like this. Charles starts by asking the old man, what don't you like about my writing? It becomes clear what kind of man he is when the old man replies with something to the effect of how those people don't belong in books. Those people? You mean the poor? What do you think they should do with those people? Aren't there workhouses? This angers Charles. You know how many people would rather die than work there? The old man stiffens. Then let them. It'll reduce the surplus population. Sickened, Charles leaves. That's when, across the street, another man calls to him, showing two children. He asks Charles if he wants to buy them. They're small and can fit into any chimney. Angered by this, Charles races after the man. He loses him in the alleyway, but this leads to a graveyard where he sees a burial taking place, witnessed by a single cranky old man. We never really find out who the man was, but that man is played by Christopher Plummer, and eventually he ends up playing the character that Charles creates out of his whole experience, Ebenezer Scrooge. That's made up for the movie, but sort of like the difference between the waiter we saw in the movie and the real person who may have been the inspiration for him, most historians believe there was a real person who was the inspiration for Ebenezer Scrooge. 
The problem is, we don't really know exactly who that person was, and there's quite a few theories out there. Probably the most outlandish of those was a theory that most historians don't really believe is true. That would be the one where Ebenezer Scrooge was based on Ebenezer Scroggy, whose last name means mealman, and was, according to this story, a caterer to King George IV. But when Charles saw his gravestone, he misinterpreted the last name to mean mean man instead of meal man, and the character of Scrooge was born. But as I said, that's most likely not true. A more likely person to be the inspiration for Scrooge may have been a man named Jemmy Wood, who many believe to have been Britain's first millionaire. He was a bank owner and, like Scrooge, was well known in his time for being extremely stingy. The idea there being that the name Scrooge stems from an old English word meaning squeeze. Or, if you remember that phrase from the old man in the movie about the poor dying to reduce the surplus population, that's not something original from the movie. That's actually something that Scrooge says in A Christmas Carol, and also something that many have attributed to a political economist named Thomas Malthus. Then again, there's another quote from Scrooge in the book that resembles someone else in history. That'd be the line where Scrooge asks, Are there no prisons? And the union workhouses and the treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor then? A man named Thomas Carlyle wrote something similar when he wrote in 1840, Are there not treadmills, gibbets, even hospitals, poor rates, new poor law? Maybe they all added to Scrooge. Maybe there's not just one inspiration. But if there's one who stands above the rest as a possible inspiration, it would probably be a man named John Ools. One reason many believe Scrooge's biggest inspiration may have been Ools was because we know Charles Dickens referenced him in another book of his, Charles's last book called Our Mutual Friend. There are multiple references to John Ools in that book, including one where characters talk about being very stingy with money and asks, did you ever come across the life of Mr. Ools? To which the other replies, the miser? Some even believe Ools looked a lot like the character that John Leach ended up drawing to depict Scrooge for A Christmas Carol. So even though that scene where we saw the movie was an oversimplification of where the character of Scrooge came from, it is likely that he came from a real person, or perhaps, like the movie implies, many people. Oh, and the man's mention of selling children to fit into chimneys. Sadly, that sort of thing was very common. After the Great Fire of London in 1666, the city required fireplaces built in a safer manner. That meant they were smaller, and chimney sweeps had a harder time cleaning out obstructions. Child labor was horrible then, and, well, this was the stuff of nightmares. Children as young as four years old would be forced to shimmy up the chimney and use a brush to knock out any suit overhead. Of course, gravity would make it fall down right on top of them. They'd keep climbing up, knocking suit all over themselves until they reached the top of the chimney. Then they'd slide down and climb out, cleaning the suit that had fallen down. For all of that, the children were usually never paid. Their masters were paid. Suit is described by the National Cancer Institute, by the way, as the byproduct of burning something, usually wood in a fireplace. It's very dangerous and something that's prolonged exposure can lead to cancer. 
So as you imagine, children who were exposed to suit for 14 to 16 hours a day meant it was common for developmental problems, disfigurement. For almost 100 years, children were dying because of this without really anyone taking notice. Then they started to notice the prolonged exposure to suit was causing cancer in the scrotum, something that they referred to as chimney sweep cancer. Sadly, that didn't stop children chimney sweeps. And sadly, that wasn't the worst of how they would die, with chimneys sometimes being as narrow as 18 inches or 45 centimeters It was common for children to get stuck in the chimneys. Once they were stuck, they would never be unstuck. If you want to learn more about this sad and dark part of British history, check out the book by Benita Collingford called British Chimney Sweeps, Five Centuries of Chimney Sweeping. For our story today, though, let's head back into the movie's timeline. We see Charles go back to the publishers, Chapman and Hall, where he proposes his idea for the new book. It's a Christmas book. Neither Chapman or Hall are impressed. A Christmas book? Do people even celebrate Christmas anymore? They're clearly not sold on this idea. In the movie, this is when we see Charles decide he'll publish it himself. And we already talked about the real reason why Charles decided not to publish with Chapman and Hall anymore. But it is true that Christmas celebrations of the day were not anything like what they are today. Although it's not like Christmas was not celebrated by anyone at all. After all, The Night Before Christmas was published in 1823 and started building some of the Christmas traditions that we know of today, including the concept of St. Nick's reindeer. There were a lot of ancient traditions that made their way into winter celebrations. The Scandinavian celebrations of Yule, or the winter solstice. The Roman holiday of Saturnalia, named after the god of agriculture, Saturn. And, of course, the Christian celebration of the birth of Jesus that timed on December 25th by Pope Julius I in the 4th century. We don't really know why he picked that date, but the Christian Bible never mentioned when Jesus was born. And because there were already celebrations in Rome around Saturnalia, many have speculated the Pope timed it to be the same in an attempt to merge the celebrations together. For centuries, those celebrations began to grow. Things changed in 1645 when, under Oliver Cromwell's Puritan reform, the church's laws became stricter about celebrating Sunday as a holy day. As such, any other days, including Christmas, were not considered to be as holy as the Lord's Day. Like any topic dealing with religion, Cromwell's ban on Christmas, as some historians call it, is hotly debated. But regardless of how much of a ban it was, it did slow the celebration of Christmas as a holiday in England for quite some time. Much of that sentiment made its way into America, where settlers made their way in the mid to late 1600s. In fact, there was a five-shilling fine in Boston for anyone who celebrated Christmas between the years 1651 and 1681. That wasn't everywhere, though. There were some reports that the Jamestown settlement happily celebrated Christmas. The American Revolution changed things in the newly formed United States, with many of the English traditions being overturned. That included Christmas celebrations, which started ramping back up in the States. In 1819, the American author Washington Irving wrote a series of stories about Christmas celebrations called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Cran. As we already learned, Washington Irving was a known supporter of Charles Dickens' writing up until that incident with the American Eagle painting conversation. 
Still, some have speculated perhaps it was this story that inspired Charles to have the idea to write a Christmas story. Although, in fact, it wasn't going to be a Christmas story at first. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but the idea for A Christmas Carol was originally going to be a pamphlet that Charles gave the title of An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. As the title implies, the topic of the pamphlet would be to stand up for the children of England who were too poor to earn a living, forced to work in workhouses and dying in the streets at way too young of an age. That idea for the pamphlet came from a child labor report that Charles Dickens read in the spring of 1843. The report included stories of girls forced to work six days a week for 16 hours a day sewing dresses or boys spending 11 hours a day dragging coal carts in the mine's tiny tunnels. Some historians suggest that revolutionaries like Frederick Engels and Karl Marx read the same reports and imagined a revolution would be imminent. Charles, on the other hand, was not a revolutionary. He was a writer. By the time Charles sat down to begin writing, the pamphlet idea was thrown out, and instead he decided to write a story to get across the message he wanted to tell. Speaking of sitting down to write, back in the movie, we see this start when there's very little time left. The movie mentions there's only six weeks to get a book out by Christmas, and Charles takes out a loan to hire an artist. That man turns out to be John Leach, a very well-respected artist who agrees to the tight deadline with some extra money in there for a rush job, of course. That's true. We already learned a bit about John Leach, who was indeed the artist who drew the illustrations for the first edition. Even though his idea for the story began formulating in his mind in the spring of 1843, that's what we learned about with the pamphlet idea, Charles Dickens actually didn't start writing A Christmas Carol until October with the intention of releasing it in time for Christmas. It's around here that, in the movie, we're introduced to Charles' sister, Frances, or Fanny, as she was called by her family and friends. She's played by Katie McGuinness. She arrives at Charles's home with her husband, the Reverend Henry Burnett, and their young son, Henry Jr. He's played by Pierce Kearney, while the senior Henry is played by Marcus Lamb. Charles is delighted at the arrival of his sister, which is a sentiment he doesn't really have when his mother and father arrive. Speaking about his dad, who's played by Jonathan Price, by the way, Charles starts complaining about him to his sister. He tells Fanny that this morning I had three to five shillings in my hand and now observe the vacancy. Then, watching his father playing with Charles's children, Fanny says, No one is useless in this world. And then Charles finishes, Who lightens the burdens of another. That quote is often attributed to Charles himself. And while it is possible that he came up with it, it's also very possible it's something that he got from his parents. There's one thing that's nearly impossible to track down their original source. It's quotes. What we do know, though, is that Charles Dickens did indeed have a very strained relationship with his father. Most of that revolved around money, something that John never seemed to have. Some of that debt might be attributed to the fact that John Dickens had eight children. Trying to raise that many kids isn't the cheapest thing to do. But then again, Charles Dickens had ten children of his own. So, it would seem that the biggest reason for John's financial misfortunes just boiled down to having a poor sense of how to handle and deal with money. We see the culmination of this animosity over money between John and Charles in the movie in the next scene. 
It happens as Charles is writing his book, and we see the ghost of Christmas past. She's played by Anna Murphy, the same girl who plays the Irish maid in the Dickens' home, Tara. It's here that the movie jumps back in time to Charles as a child. He's only 11 years old, and John is being carted off. We don't really know where to at this point, but John mentioned something about being free once the debt is paid. So we must assume it's debtor's prison. Behind John, we can see a building with a sign that says, Warren's Blacking. In the jailer's cart, we can see John, a girl behind him, and his wife, Elizabeth, holding a son. So there's at least two children in there. While it is true that John Dickens was sent to debtor's prison, the way the movie shows it happening isn't accurate. It was on February 20th, 1824, when John was sent to the Marshalsea debtor's prison because of a loan in the amount of 40 pounds and 10 shillings to a baker in town named James Kerr. That's not the only debt John incurred. That was just the final straw of a debt totaling 700 pounds. But the inaccurate part in the movie isn't John being sent to debtor's prison. The inaccuracy was showing Elizabeth and two children being sent there at the same time. It was in April, a couple months later, of 1824, when Elizabeth and four of their youngest children were sent to Marshalsea with John. That would be four of their seven children at the time. The last of their children, little Augustus Dickens, wasn't born until 1827. The movie is correct, though, showing that young Charles Dickens was forced to work at Warren's Blacking Warehouse. He did get paid, but barely, six shillings for an entire week's worth of work. His job there was to work 10 hours a day pasting labels onto boot blacking, or shoe polish. Here's how Charles described his days at Warren's in a letter to John Forster many years later. The Blacking Warehouse was the last house on the left-hand side of the way at Old Hungerford Stairs. It was a crazy, tumble-down old house, abutting, of course, on the river, and literally overrun with rats. Its wainscoted rooms and its rotten floors and staircase, and the old gray rats swarming down in the cellars, and the sound of their squeaking and scuffling coming up the stairs at all times, and the dirt and decay of the place rise up visibly before me, as if I were there again. The counting house was on the first floor, overlooking the coal barges and the river. There was a recess in it in which I was to sit and work. My work was to cover the pots of paste blacking, first with a piece of oil paper and then with a piece of blue paper, to tie them round with a string, and then to clip the paper close and neat all round until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from the apothecary's shop. When a certain number of grosses of pots had attained this pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each a printed label and then go on again with more pots. Two or three other boys were kept at similar duty downstairs on similar wages. One of them came up in a ragged apron and paper cap on the first Monday morning to show me the trick of using the string and tying the knot. His name was Bob Fagan, and I took the liberty of using his name long afterwards in Oliver Twist. The character of Bob Fagan was very controversial for the anti-Semitism, but that's a story for another day. John's days in debtor's prison ended when his mother died and left him all the money she had, 450 pounds. That was immediately taken by the debtors, and along with the 146 pounds John was being given as a pension for his time as a clerk in the Navy, things were looking up. The Dickens family was allowed to leave prison when John agreed to declare bankruptcy and give up all his possessions while promising to pay back the rest of the debts as soon as possible. 
It'd be a couple more years before those debts were finally cleared. The movie really focuses more on Charles' strained relationship with his father over having to work at the workhouse due to John's debts, but he was also bitter toward his mother. You see, after John and Elizabeth were released from prison, Charles was not freed from the blocking warehouse until after a disagreement between John and Charles's boss at the warehouse resulted in Charles getting fired. His mom wanted him to keep working there so he could make money for the family, even though it was a meager sum. But his dad wanted Charles to go back to school, something he'd been pulled from when John had been sent to prison. For her wanting him to go back to the blacking warehouse, Charles harbored a bitterness toward his mother that lasted until the end of his life. Back in the movie, we see the ghost of Christmas present next. He's played by Justin Edwards, the same guy who plays John Forster in the film. After a bit of explanation that the ghost of Christmas present is all about the gifts of abundance, goodwill, and generosity, the ghost turns to Christopher Plummer's version of Scrooge. But you wouldn't know anything about generosity, would you? Scrooge looks a bit sheepish. Unlike these people, the ghost continues, and the scene transforms to show Bob and Mrs. Cratchit she never really has a name, but some adaptations of the story have called her Emily. Together with their children, Martha, Belinda, Peter, a few other unnamed kids, and of course, the youngest, Tiny Tim. He's very sick and must use a crutch to get around. According to the movie, these characters are all inspired by Charles's sister's family, including little Henry Jr., who we see walking with a crutch just like Tiny Tim. Like we learned about many of the other characters for Charles's stories, there very well could have been many inspirations for Tiny Tim, but most historians agree that it was indeed Fanny's son, Henry Jr., who was mostly the inspiration for Tiny Tim, although it's worth pointing out that his name wasn't always Tiny Tim. In the first draft, it was Little Fred, possibly named after one or both of Charles's younger brothers, Frederick or Alfred. In fact, some historians believe the sickliness of Tiny Tim was inspired by the illness of his younger brother. So perhaps, again, we have a character born out of multiple real people. Going back to the movie, we see the final of the three ghosts next. It happens when Charles is walking in the city at night. And not to get too sidetracked, but that's something Charles did. As biographer Claire Tomlin mentioned in her great book, Charles Dickens, A Life, during the six-week period writing A Christmas Carol and under the stress of declining sales and a growing family, Charles would walk as much as 15 to 20 miles a night around London. That's about 24 to 32 kilometers, by the way. And during those walks, he would focus on formulating the storyline for his book. And so, in the movie, it's on one of these walks that he comes across the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The movie doesn't show this as a character played by someone that we're already familiar with, like the other two, but rather a scary-looking figure that's cloaked and towering above everyone else. Following its finger, Charles and the host of characters in his mind that are following him find themselves in the Cratchit household. Mrs. Cratchit asks Robert if he went to the cemetery today. Yes, he replies. My little child. My little child. Then, as the tears flow for Mr. and Mrs. Cratchit, we see Tiny Tim's crutch lying unused by the fireplace. Suddenly, we're back to reality as Charles is reading the story to Tara. Wait, Tiny Tim dies? Tara is in shock. No, he can't die. Well, he was very sick, Charles says, implying that the end was inevitable. 
but he, he can't die. Scrooge must do something to fix it. Of course, that's not exactly how it happened in the movie, but you get the idea. As dramatized as this scene is for the film, it's very possible something like that could have happened. And while I couldn't find anything in my research to indicate Tiny Tim would explicitly die in the original version of A Christmas Carol, in a book called The Lives and Times of Ebenezer Scrooge by Paul Davis, he writes that Charles didn't include that epic line confirming that, indeed, Tiny Tim did not die. That was not included in the original handwritten manuscript. It would seem that that was added later by the time it was being printed. As for the illness that Tiny Tim had, many have speculated as to the nature of it. The movie makes no mention of this, but probably because Charles never really clarified it himself. But the mere fact that there was a curable illness has made many people wonder about what it was. And most doctors who have been asked this question tend to believe it must have been rickets. That's an illness that was common for children in the 19th century England, where smog often prohibited the most natural source of vitamin D that kept rickets at bay. The symptoms for rickets would be a loss of bone density and weak muscles, which would have led to the crutch. Eventually, if untreated, it would lead to death, something that sadly many suffered. But it was curable, if not from the sun's vitamin D, then by an improved diet, and that's something that could be improved by Cratchit getting a raise, of course. Heading back into the movie, things end happily, much like A Christmas Carol itself. Charles manages to get the book written in time. He sends it to the printer and then seems to wait around while it's getting done. Charles's relationship with his father is restored. And finally, the text on screen at the very end of the film mentions that the book was published on December 19th, 1843. And by Christmas Eve, every single copy had been sold. That is true. There were 6,000 first edition copies that were printed. Granted, it's not likely Charles was waiting around for them to print. It took two weeks for them to print. That was between the time that Charles finished writing the story and the time that they were printed. But by the time December 24th rolled around, all 6,000 of them had sold. But things weren't all sunshine and happiness after this for Charles. While his relationship with his father may have improved, it wasn't magically solved like the movie shows. And as we learned earlier, Charles harbored a bitterness toward his mother for the rest of his life. Instead of being the immediate resolution to his money problems, A Christmas Carol ended up being a little more trouble than Charles anticipated. After all, he was both the writer and the publisher this time around, in his mind, Charles had hoped to make a thousand pounds for the six thousand copies. And he was close. It made nine hundred and ninety-two pounds and five shillings. But then came the expenses. Seventy-four pounds and two shillings for the printing, eighty-nine pounds and two shillings for the paper, forty-nine pounds and eighteen shillings for the drawings, binding at a hundred and eighty pounds, printing plates at fifteen pounds and seventeen shillings, advertising and incidentals at a hundred and sixty-eight pounds and seven shillings, and many more expenses. In the end, Charles Dickens made a total of 137 pounds for the first edition of A Christmas Carol. That's about $16,500 today. Not bad, but hardly the $118,000 that the 1,000 pounds would have been back then. But then Charles was also thrust into a battle to defend his work. It started when the book made its way to America. 
In January of 1844, the American publishers Harper and Brothers advertised a Christmas carol would be available on January 24th for only six cents a copy. With an exchange rate of five dollars to one pound, the cost of five shillings for the authorized version was a lot more expensive. The reprint by Harper was cheaply made. It didn't include any of the four original illustrations by John Leach that Charles's authorized version did, and, well, it was a blatant copyright violation. But it was six cents. It sold well, but Charles never saw any of the money in royalties for it. And it didn't stop there. Newspapers in America serialized the story and others ripped it off. For example, an author named Henry Hewitt published a book called A Christmas Ghost Story that was a little different, but not much. According to Henry, he just improved and added on Charles's original story. Of course, Charles never saw the money from Henry's book either. Sure, there were copyright laws, but there hadn't been agreements between the United States and England on those copyrights yet. When he wrote the book, Charles was hoping to make £1,000 in profit from his story in the weeks following his release. A full year later, he'd made a grand total of £744, or about 89000 in today's US dollars, from A Christmas Carol. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. To learn more about the real story behind Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, I'd recommend starting with the book that the movie is based on. It's not written anything like the movie. It's That's really a dramatization, whereas the book is more of a historical piece. But it's also called The Man Who Invented Christmas, and it's by Les Standiford. I'll include a link to that book more books, and plenty more resources for you to dive even deeper into the life of Charles Dickens and the real story of A Christmas Carol over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Charles Dickens was forced into child labor at a young age. Number two, Charles's dad, John, served time in debtor's prison. Number three, Charles Dickens invented Christmas. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number three. Even though the book and movie are called The Man Who Invented Christmas, I don't think either of them are really trying to say that Charles Dickens actually made up the holiday and celebration from scratch. What they're saying, though, is that Charles Dickens was largely responsible for that Christmas spirit that we're so familiar with today, that feeling of love and generosity that helps us make this a special time of year. And speaking of that special time of year, now it's time for the special surprise. Normally, I'll release some exclusive bonus content to base on a true story producers over on Patreon. Well, next week... I'll be releasing that bonus content to everyone. Consider it a little Christmas gift from me to you. So, what is it? Well, thankfully, copyright law doesn't last forever, so that means a Christmas carol is public domain. And that means, unlike the troubles that Charles Dickens had when it was first released, it's something free to share. 
So next week, I'll be releasing an audio version of the entire book, all 30,000 words or so of it, narrated by yours truly. It's the first time to narrate an entire book on the show before, but I know it'll take a lot of my time to put together, but it'll be worth it if it helps brighten your holiday season just a little bit more. So that'll release next Monday on Christmas Eve. And until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.